0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Editor's Desk here on Business News Radio. I'm Felicity Duncan and with me, Alec Hugg. It's been a couple of years now, Alec, that we've been uh, enjoying the, the the relative sunshine of the Ramaphosa presidency after a kind of bitterly contested period, uh, 2016 and thereabouts, Uh but really, you know, the honeymoon, I think, is increasingly over and we're, we're waking up to some new realities. And some of those realities are that many of the problems that were born in the Zuma years have not been laid to rest. We're still wrestling with them. And perhaps it's, it's time to start asking those difficult questions.
1: It's 10 days. Uh, well, rather, in 10 days time, it'll be exactly two years since Ramaphosa was voted into power. Big surprise for most people, and most of all, Jacob Zuma, who was expecting his ex-wife to take over. And that is, uh, during this time, we've had quite a bit of ups and downs. As you say, it started off with Ramaphoria. Um, then it's, it got to uh, concern. Then business confidence actually went to its lowest level since 19, I think it's in uh, 1998, 2000. And, Seven run in those really bad periods. So we've got back to that kind of a level. And people are now having to ask questions. But what I, I think the big question is in the media itself, it's almost like because Zuma was so bad and they were so corrupt and just so ignorant of sensible economic policies that when Ramaphosa and his team came in, they were given um A free pass in many ways, and I think that free pass is now has has to be withdrawn. I was very disappointed this week to see that Ramaphosa was in Togo. Uh, I don't know what their trade with South Africa is, but uh, probably uh, the, the 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 equivalent of a town like uh, Rustenburg, um, and he was up there when this country was hit very hard again by load shedding and the load shedding costs billions of rands to the country every time it occurs, you've got to have the captain of the ship actually steering the ship on board, on point, making sure these things happen. He can't be leaving off and doing uh, international shows as important as they might be in the broader concept. And it reminds one of Jan Smuts, who was an international statesman, Uh, of of great repute during the second world war he was a field marshal uh, which is the highest rank one can get in the military he was very important in in a member of the war cabinet and he was fated as uh, as a hero in the western world but he spent too much time in the western world and too little time at home and then we saw he his government lost and had that Happened, had 1948 not happened South Africa's history might have gone In a very different direction So it's just these flags that need to be waived um, The free passes Need to be withdrawn now The questions that haven't really Been asked uh, Need to be really, really put forward And by the same token The future of South Africa Is on a I wouldn't say a Knife edge, but it is at a very uh, Tricky area And you need to have the captain of the ship on board, steering it while the crisis is on, not traveling abroad and uh, making friends with countries which which probably are going to be friends anyway.
0: Let's talk a little bit about load shedding because you're right, this actually is a completely devastating thing economically, right? Obviously, when load shedding happens, people find it very frustrating in their personal lives to be in the dark in their homes. And I know you just had a Rough couple of 24 hours with, with load shedding yourself. Um, but really, as, uh, in sort of, uh, cruel as it sounds, that's not what's important. What's important is what it does to the economy, which is absolutely devastating. It's devastating for small businesses. And it also completely undermines many of the large industries in South Africa. So this is a top priority problem. And we're seeing load shedding with the old, the good old wet coal. Uh, boogeyman, is back. And, uh, I mean, this is now sort of getting ridiculous.
1: It is. It's, it's completely ridiculous that you're blaming it on wet coal. There are far wetter countries in South Africa, and they have coal-fired power stations, and they don't have this problem. The problem starts with, uh, and, and we need to go back a few years, Mark van der Riet, the late Mark van der Riet, who was the coal scientist at Eskom, stopped accepting Bad coal, bad quality coal. In other words, what was happening was that there were a lot of smaller suppliers and bigger suppliers, a.k.a. the Guptas, who were really just shoveling rock and a little bit of coal together and putting that forward to Eskom and forcing the Eskom power stations to accept it, which, of course, you can just imagine the impact that that's had over the years on the boilers and the whole infrastructure and the maintenance of the system Mark van der Riet refused it. He was then suspended and hounded, and he spent some years uh, in the wilderness, including some of the Ramaphosa years. And he passed away through, um, well, his family say through stress. Now, if there's one thing that the new regime need to do, it is to recognize people like Mark van der Riet and that they were right, that they were correct in what they were saying and not to allow the perpetuation of a, of a situation where coal that is being delivered to Eskom power stations is not sufficient quality. If they were delivering the, the kind of quality that the con, they were contractually supposed to, and remember there are many of these small contractors, BE contractors, etc., who really are uh, still milking the system. If, if there was a, a, a requirement that the quality was just, According to what they had contractually anyway, you wouldn't have any of these problems. There would be no such thing as uh, power stations or the country having uh, blackouts. And, you know, it's a a quaint South African term, load shedding. But effectively, it's blackouts. They're blacking out big parts of the country. And it is quite simply just enforce the laws that are there and the rules that are there already. But this isn't happening. And uh, just from our own, well, an upside to all of this is from our own perspective, we had load shedding in Bryanston uh, from half past 2 to 10 o'clock on Thursday uh, sorry on Friday evening and when they put back put the the power back on the substation uh, which serves this this huge suburb and many others in the area blew up and the the city power from Johannesburg published pictures of the substation and it was almost enough to send uh, if you'd seen the pictures on Twitter to, to send you off to go and buy a, a, a generator because it didn't look like uh, this thing was going to get fixed anytime soon. But a poor plan. I'm amazed to have woken up this morning. We had no power uh, for the whole of yesterday, but waking up this morning and the power was back on again. So uh, although we do uh, shoot ourselves in the foot, we are quite amazing as a nation at being able to recover things which look impossible, but recover them pretty quickly. Now, if we can just apply that uh, ability to a broader scale and, and just apply the rules where, where the source of the problem lies, again, maybe there should be a Mark Funderich rule within Eskom. Here's a man who, who worked there. He gave his life, in effect, for the company by standing up against the Guptas and, and other people who were abusing it. And his rule would be certain quality of coal you've agreed to. If it's below that quality, we're not accepting it. Then we would never have the problems that have happened over the past few weeks. I'm hoping that uh, the new chief executive director, when he takes, uh, takes the reins, implements these kind of basic issues, which will just stop Eskim from doing really silly things Uh, which seem to be in many ways politically motivated.
0: Now, the other, I would say, current bugbear facing the South African government and and another example of really the exact problems that we've seen at ESCOM in a lot of ways is obviously SAA. And this week we hear that um, SAA is going to go through a business rescue process um, and, you Hopefully, I guess uh, they're gonna they're gonna turn something out there. What is your take on the announcement and and on what's been happening at SAA? Because you know, while ESCOM is absolutely core to having a functional economy in South Africa, uh, having a national carrier is really not uh, anything anything essential. It's it's really an optional thing. Um, yet a lot of government time and energy is being poured into SAA, which is obviously in, in a very bad way.
1: Felicity, we need to go back a little bit. The, during the Cold War, uh, the liberation parties in Africa very much were supported by the communist states, so the Soviets and, and the Chinese. And as a consequence, that's where they were trained. That's where the ideology came from. That was where the philosophy came from. That's where in South Africa people called each other comrade, well, not so much anymore, but used to. It's it's that That's the basis. But slowly but surely, the realization of what caused the collapse of the uh, Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, was economics, and that these policies that were being followed were guaranteed to take uh, you to punery. And slowly but surely, the penny is dropping. Now, probably the best example of this is the MPLA in uh, Angola. They were supported by the Soviet Union. They were a very, very heavily socialist, communist state. And they could get away with it because they have oil reserves. And 95% of the export earnings and 70% of the taxes were generated by oil. So you can really make a a lot of – that will paper over a lot of cracks so in Angola, uh, under the previous regime where you had just massive corruption, virtually every company of any note was owned by the state. What happened uh, three years ago was that a new prime minister or new president, uh, Joe Lorenzo, came in and he has transformed that country. And in fact, and on the 15th of August this year, he announced that the, well, say transformed, He's, he has promised to transform it. In, uh, in August this year, he announced the, a massive privatization. They are going to be selling off something like 220 state-owned companies, 17 of them in IPOs on the stock exchange, and many of the others, substantial businesses. And he says the only way to do that, why are they doing that, is because the only way to grow the economy is through having the private sector driving it. Now, that penny has dropped everywhere but you still have the ideology that exists within South Africa where you can't really talk about privatization even though you know you've really got to do it. So business rescue is one step removed from going to privatization, but actually it's the same thing. You've taken South African airways. It's been a drain on the taxpayer. You cannot liquidate it. If you try and liquidate it as the, the, uh, the previous incumbent there tried to do – um, uh, uh, Ramasia was uh, the, the um, interim chief executive. Zuz Ramasia, what she was trying to do was to liquidate it so that her patron Dudu Mieni who has been plundering that place for years, would have a chance of the the uh, malfeasance being being swept away, being hidden, being disappeared in a liquidation. Apart from anything else, a liquidation would cost the country 40 billion rands. That's the, the inside estimate that I, I've got from people within the organization. That is in the cost of air, uh, aircraft leases, cancellation of aircraft leases, and in retrenchments. 40 billion is, is not enough. South Africa doesn't have that money at the moment. That would be an extra two percentage points in VAT, for instance, just to pay for SAA. So it's all, you're almost in a situation where you pay your 4 billion rand a year in subsidy uh, rather than take the 40 billion rand hit. But 4 billion rand a year is also something that the country doesn't have. So what do you do then? You take it to the next step, which is business rescue, and you put it into the private sector hands effectively. You protect it from liquidation and from creditors, and then you try and work on a way of taking the assets that exist through deals with others to keep continue it as a going concern and then you don't have that 40 billion rand liability which you would have otherwise so it's very clever in the way that it's been handled and it also suggests to me that that could be the next step for Eskom because Eskom cannot continue in the in the current vein of just being propped up by the taxpayer indefinitely if there is to be a solution there the potential is, or the possibility is, that business rescue might be be um, something that that will be considered. But going back to what I was mentioning right in the beginning, in Angola they've realised that private they don't have the issues that South Africa has with a a, a a government that is that's a ruling party that is is divided itself. In Angola, the MPLA rules, they've got no problem. They do what they need to do. And what they've decided to do is is what Deng Xiaoping said in China many years ago. I don't care what color the cat is, black or white, as long as it catches mice, hence capitalism or communism. They're doing the same thing. In South Africa, we're still wanting a particular color cat um, and thinking that it'll catch mice if if it's got splints over uh, both of its legs. And those are the, the issues that slowly, slowly we're coming to. Ramaphosa is the master of negotiations he's the master of the long game and I think that that's really as much as I'm critical of him not paying enough attention on the economy right now in the short term in the long term he certainly has got things right and and he knows what needs to be done business rescue for SAA is a step in the right direction
0: well now, Alec, before we wrap up for this week, uh, I'm going to draw us back a little here to ESCOM and talk about uh, a piece that we published, unpublished, and republished this week um, <laughs> on, on, the, uh, on the ESCOM mm. debt story, an analysis from a US energy expert called Carl Miller. Now, do you want to tell us what, what happened there? Because it, it appeared, it disappeared, and reappeared.
1: Extraordinary. Carl Miller has been corresponding with me for, oh, probably a few months anyway. About uh, his views on Eskom, and he's been sending me um, bits and pieces, and, and they seem to me to be quite, uh, well, quite aggressive on the one hand, but on the other hand, also quite accurate. He's, he knows what he's talking about. Anyway, this week we, um, uh, he sent an, another piece uh, with a, with a, quite a lengthy um, uh, presentation. Looking at Eskom, nothing really new in there, but just illustrating how much trouble it's in. And his view was that Eskom cannot be saved, certainly not the way it's going at the moment. And he's got the, um, from the, from the engagement that I've had with him, he's got, seems to have the credibility to, um, at least be listened to. Anyway, we published, uh, uh, our colleague Jackie Cameron had a look at it and, and, and our editors, Faria and, and, and Stuart and, uh, we published it on Thursday, I think it was Thursday night, uh, and very shortly after we published it, I was I was uh, told on Twitter that we were publishing fake news. So that's an incredibly uh, strong allegation, and as a, and it came from a source from somebody who, uh, you know, from a big publication. So I thought we better take this seriously, and we duly did. So we took it down, took the story down in the morning, and said we're going to investigate further. And then, after investigating further, uh, I was quite satisfied that this is not fake news. Fake news is something that's been created or something that's fictitious. So you would it would intimate that there was no such person as Carl Miller, that what he said was rubbish, um, that um, it, it it was being done for nefarious motives, etc. That's fake news, but. For a, a reputable person who might have a view that is different to mine or yours or to the government's, indeed, um, that's not fake news. That's just a, difference, a, a different opinion or a different approach to it. And certainly the numbers do seem to add up to or, or are in line with everybody else's. So I don't know why we were um, we were warned in this way, um, but it was the responsible thing to do. So we took the story down, had a look at it again given that I had been engaging with this guy, but I didn't have all the information I mean, on him clearly. And then we republished, and there it is. It's on the site and being been pretty well read. And I guess a little bit of a wake-up call. We've had no response from Eskim to say this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So in, in, uh, in, in the broader scheme of things, it's adding to the debate.
0: that's all we have time for thanks for joining us if you'd like to read a summary of this interview there's one up in the premium section on biznews.com don't forget you can sign up for premium just five pounds a month and that'll give you access to our great original content and to content from our partner the wall street journal